Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Deep in History. I hope that you've been able to uh, enjoy some of the previous uh, episodes. I'm here with Monsignor Steenson, and we're going to jump into Book 2 of Against Heresies. Um, as I begin, again, I want to remind those of you that are just joining us, we're using as a text the book, the translation of Against Heresies that had been done by John Keeble, who, or Keble, Keeble, Keble, who Keeble, was a yeah. per, personal friend of John Henry Newman and uh, his friend uh, Percy, right? Um, uh, Pusey. Pusey. Uh, uh, what's wrong with me today? Hoover Pusey, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah the, the, you know, these... Yeah. These Anglicans from about 150 years ago, and they were they were starting to put out a definitive translation of the early fathers, and this was one of them, and it's a brilliant one. I particularly like it because of its references in the back to uh, yeah. the, the scriptures and to the all the background. And as we jump into this, Father, I do want you to address something that I think is very important, and that is that. Behind what we're reading, there are a lot of things that Irenaeus assumes his audience knows, right? As we jump into the study of the Gnostics, he's assuming his audience have a wider understanding than just the scriptures themselves. There, Yes, there's a kind of a common philosophical um world that they come out of. Um, and so they would be able to talk to each other and recognize each other. Uh, one thing that's always fascinated me about um, this period of time that St. Irenaeus writes is that um, when you think of that great um, scene in the book of Genesis, where the angels visit Abraham under the yoke of Mamre, in later Christian tradition from St. Augustine on, that is recognized as symbolic of the Blessed Trinity. Hmm. But in this earlier period of time, um, it is the head angel is Christ and the other two that are with him are angels because um, these early Christian theologians believed that God the Father was invisible fundamentally, absolutely unknowable and invisible. And he's only made known through his son who's mm-hmm. come forth. And we're going to talk today a little bit about um, this idea of God, the artificer, um, yeah. and the way that the Gnostics developed that. Everybody would have had a basic common understanding of what that means during that time. And it comes out of the out of Platonism, basically. Um, The idea that the one is removed from the universe, he he is um, incomprehensible and unknowable. And so nothing gets done except that he generates his word. Um, And it is his word that comes forth. And his word then becomes the artificer, uh, they would, the, the Greeks used the word demiurge, demiurge or demiorgos. Okay. Um, artificer basically corresponds to that. That doesn't necessarily mean what a Christian would understand it to mean God the Father. Hmm. It, it means whomever God the Father had assigned to um, actually do the if you will, the manual work of creating the universe. Right. Um, and, and so that's really lies that that's basically the, the, the Greek um, Platonist idea is that God, the father doesn't dirty his fingers with the universe. He, he hi, he's got a hired hand for that. Right. The, and the Gnostics pick up some of that and then spit it into a weird, bizarre, yeah, as well. And so when when they talk about God being the artificer of the creation, I think it's really important to always remember that they 
are not talking about the God of all, who is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, this is some other kind of a, this is a different secondary thing. So as you begin book two, um, what we're going to do today um, in our, our, our strategy today is, I mean, how do you handle all of book two? And um, what we're going to focus on today, if you will, is going to be what we've entitled this episode, God the Artificer, which in a way connects with the very first line of the creed. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. In, in the most simple sense is God creator as, as the beginning foundation for everything. And here we are 2,000 years later, if you will, 1,900 years later, it's still the debatable issue. A very large percentage of people in our world today do not believe in God as a creator. They don't. And if you don't believe in God as a creator and understand what that means for all of life, it leads to completely different conclusions. Mm-hmm about ourselves, about this life we've been given, about our stuff, about everything, about the future. If you don't begin with God as creator, and if you will, you read, if you, if you take time to read through the Old Testament, verse by verse, you'll see that long before the Old Testament people thought of God as Father, the underlying assumption was God as creator, which then established the, why the laws have any impact on our lives. You know, those are the keys. So, but the end of verse of book one, I wanted to read this, Monsignor. I thought it was interesting. He says, the last paragraph, so such then being the case, in other words, everything he said before, as I have promised, we will subjourn that which will subvert them according to our ability, speaking against them all in the next book, which is what we're getting to. But then he goes on, for our statement runs to a great length as thou seest. And that's kind of funny. And it cracks me up a little bit because our episodes go a bit longer than we plan every time, don't they, Monsignor? They do indeed, yes. <laughs> we, we think we're going to do a half an hour and then we end up doing two days. Uh, uh, and then he goes on, and we will also furnish resources for overthrowing them, meeting all their opinions in the same order in which we have stated them, that we may not only discover the wild beast, but wound him also on every side. You know, I'm assuming, what do you think, Monsignor, was this original a one scroll, or would this have been in book form, do you think, when it first appeared? I I don't know. Of course, it would have been written in Greek, not in Latin. So we yeah. we've got it in a later translation here. Um, but it could have been one long scroll. It could have been, yeah. It could have been, or in, or in sheets bound together uh, mm -hmm. in in that a way. Codex. But yeah, it, it kind of makes sense that it's a scroll because if you look at each book, they're about the same size. So they may have fit on one long scroll. So he's written this, he's putting it together, and now he's going back to doing his bishopric stuff and uh, leading the church uh, where he's a, a bishop, putting together his thoughts on book two. In the beginning of book two, in the preface, along with another, another thing, he says in about the third sentence, we have also set forth the opinions of such as were before them, in other words, some of the Gnostics that you talked about, Monsignor, in our last episode, pointing out how they differ from one another and much sooner from truth itself. And the reason I go to that quote is I thought it'd be good as we begin, uh, Monsignor, to take some time to point out some of the principal Gnostic myths that, were, that he's addressing that the common people in his church 
would have been hearing at the dinner table or at their work. You know, this is the stuff that's floating around that's affecting and poisoning their Christian faith in these early days. Very good. Yeah, these are basically it's a summation of Gnostic teachings that we've met up with in book one. Um, and probably the first principle is um, this idea that somebody rebelled against the one, the one who is in charge of this perfect spiritual universe. Um, someone rebelled against him. And that person, uh, the Gnostics call the Demiurge, or what we're talking today, the artificer. Um, and that rebellion culminates in the creation of the physical world. In other words, that the one God, um, that gets to be a problem when they talk about the yeah. one because they, they just keep going back and back and back, you know. But, um, but the original intention was there would be no physical universe. This was, this was an evil thing that was done by a rebellion because of a rebellion. And there are then the Gnostics developed some various theories about how this happens. Um, the uh, this one myth that um, that Irenaeus talks about is how Sophia, or sometimes she's called Akamoth, um, she's the daughter of God, um, strays from the pleroma. Uh, that's the Greek word for fullness. So. A perfect heaven. That's what that's what that word means there. And and as she strays, it's her secretions that produce um, material existence. And this is basically say this is basically Simon of Magus's um, Simon the Magician's uh, idea. And he he goes on at one point, according to some of the texts that we have, of arguing that this Sophia is actually his wife. Uh, he married this prostitute named Helena in Tyre, and um, and he was he claims that he's the one, hmm. and this Sophia, this Helena, is now his wife here on Earth. But she's been trapped here for all of human history um, because the rebellious angels forced her to be uh, remain in the body. So then. She just moves from body to body as the body dies. And um, that's how, so by the time we get to Simon and Helena knocking on the door of the apostles uh, abode in the New, in the New Testament, um, um, that Helena is, is this daughter of God. And Simon, he's, he's something above Christ. Um, it's just totally bizarre. And the, th the third point is um, now who is the Christ that comes forth? And um, generally the Gnostics all seem to be on the same page on this one. Um, Christ has come forth uh, from the one for the purpose of freeing those who are elect, those who are in the know and leading them back up into the play Roma again. That's now that is basically taking um, a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of Eastern mysticism, and a little bit of um, Platonism together to, to work up that kind of a myth. Um, so there, um, you know, in terms of uh, where we are here now in the world, then um, the Gnostics create this radical dualism between the spiritual and the material, and they have they're very very rude about this um, <laughs> because they're they're the spiritual ones, um, but the the material world um, is animal, so they acknowledge that it has some life in it but it's very minimal, low level life. And it uses, they use the Greek word tsuke uh, or soul uh, for that. And you have to have a kind of a, a Greek um, understanding of the human person. So the highest is the spirit and then comes the soul 
and then comes the, the physical body itself. And I, when I treat, was teaching uh, seminarians this, I was, I was trying to give them a way of um, trying to understand this. So I would, I would cite um, Colonel Sanders in The Water Boy, Adam Sandler's The Water Boy, um, and talking about the, um, um, the Medusa oblongata. <laughs> You know, that part of the brain that basically does all the basic things that keep the body alive, but it has no thought to it. Um, and so these Gnostics basically developed this idea that they were spiritual. And then there was this other version of Christianity for the these low-level animal people, these psychics, Um and the Catholic Church would ultimately be called um, psychic. Um, so basically, it's at the animal level of existence, not at the higher spiritual level of existence. Um, what you see here, of course, is a denial of the incarnation. Um, the incarnation has no um, place in the Gnostic system. And um, because Christ didn't bother to take a human body, except maybe um, just in appearances only, but it had no saving effect. Um, therefore, the way you lead your physical life is inconsequential, and you can do whatever you want. So it, there's a lot of immorality that comes with it as well. That's basically some of the principal Gnostic myths that I, I that I see in the first book. And Monsignor, you did a great job of pulling those together because it's not easy to read. I mean, it, as I read it through, it just reminded me of the air. And, and I know Irenaeus deals with this one place, but the arrogance of humanity to God, I got to figure it out. I got to explain it. I got to explain God, the arrogance of that. And sometimes we get caught up in the Either ors, either ors, um, rather than recognize that the mystery of God is often a both and. It's really a both and. It's a mystery. And Irenaeus, again, I wish I had the, the quote. It's in the first book where he talks about uh, that it, the danger of always wanting to go beyond the simple understanding. Yeah. You know, and, and that's where we get into trouble. And everything you talked about a moment ago is somewhere today. You go to the Absolutely. internet. You know, the mysteries of the, I just saw a, a podcast about the secrets of the universe, you know, and it's all there. Um, when you were at Harvard, I think there was a, I think she was Catholic professor that taught at Boston College. I don't know if I should mention her name because I probably would misrepresent her, but she was very caught up in feminist theology, and she had books about goddess, and she wrote about there. Oh, were, I remember this. Yeah, there was God, and then there was his wife, and pretty much God, the husband, was a big dummy. It was really goddess, his wife, that was in charge of everything, and. I mean, just as you were quoting this, reminded me of having to read that book years ago. She also taught that that Mary Magdalene was really the one Christ intended to be the proclaimer of the gospel. But when she went and told the apostles, of course, they couldn't. They were chauvinists, and they put her up down, and then they took it on, right? I mean— Again, I don't want yeah, to mention her name, yeah. but I think she was teaching there in this. Boston when you were there. Yes. I never had anything from her. <laughs> no class. But she's a modern but Gnostic. We, but, but we had, you know, that was that was all that was taught um, over at Harvard Divinity School was in the New Testament seminars. Everybody was working on Gnostic texts. Um, that's They were fascinated with them. As if we've we've found some secret truth that had been long ago. I mean, there are there are yeah. recognized quote Christian scholars today that have won the day because they believe 
that in the earliest days of the church, this was the stuff that was true, and then it was put aside because, quote, orthodoxy won the day at Ephesus, at at, uh, um, uh, Nicaea. Nicaea. And so this has been what has won the day ever since, but the truth was still waiting to be discovered. That's exactly what they said in in that yeah. that you read there. Um, and it was discovered, you know, in our time, it was discovered in the 1940s when those British soldiers uncovered those texts in Nag Hammadi, Egypt. So um, there's also amazing. a book. There's also a book out that's one of the most best-selling of all time that deals with this, called the Da Vinci Code. Yes. And it, we didn't talk much about it, but in book one, Irenaeus talks about the gospel according to Judas, which was one of those early texts. That's right. And we didn't have that text until it was recently discovered. So, Yeah. So here's Irenaeus in the midst of all this. So how do you, how do you help people get through all these ideas? And we're here today. They're all around today in different disguises, some of them in very near Christian theologies. But I really believe that many of these theologians today are blind to how their theologies are are borderline, and often because they get caught up in either or. I was in there when I was a staunch five-and-a-half-point Calvinist. You know, my good evangelical brothers are not going to like me to say this, but the problem is that when you emphasize the sovereignty of God too much, too far, you have to take away from the freedom of humanity. You can't, and, and, and staunch Calvinists can't handle the fact that God in his total sovereignty also gave man total freedom to respond. How do you deal with both of those? And Calvinists end up with neither or. And so you end up with total depravity. Man does not have the freedom to choose. His will is totally gone. Uh, He's totally predestined. Whether he's going to go from the beginning of time, a person is predestined to heaven or hell with no choice. That's when you get caught up in the either or, rather than recognizing the mystery of the both and. That's exactly what we're dealing with here in different ways. That's well put, yeah, very well put. So what we'd like to do in the rest of this, and hopefully not as following in Irenaeus is when he admits himself that our statement <laughs> runs to a great length, as thou seest, um, we're going to only deal with some quotes from Book 2 that focus on what Irenaeus considers the most fundamental belief, and that is God as creator. And as you mentioned earlier, God as artificer, he's got to understand that correctly, right? Because we'll see that some people made it wrong. So I'm just going to deal with a number of quotes. What I'll do is I'll, I'll draw your attention to where they are. I'll read them through, and then Monsignor uh, I invite your reflection on them. Um, I'll give my reflection, but of course, that's my reflections yeah. are all are always borderline Gnostic anyway. That's why I'm glad to have you on the program to make sure you make sure I'm corrected. But the first one, Book Two, Chapter One, um, on page ninety-four, is really the beginning of his argument, and he, it's Chapter One, if you will, of Book Two, and he says this. It is well, then, to begin from the first and chiefest head, from God, from, excuse me, from God the artificer and maker of heaven and earth, and of all things that are therein, whom they blaspheming call the offspring of defect, and to show that neither above him nor after him is anything, and that not moved by any, But of his own mind, he freely made all things. He being the only God and the only Lord and the only creator and the only father and alone upholding all things and himself giving to all things 
their existence. For how shall they possibly be above him any other fullness or beginning or power or any other God, since God, the fullness of all these things, must contain them all in infinite space and himself be contained by none. So if you will, Monsignor, it seems that there he is placing right before his readers his goal to cut through all this stuff. To emphasize that's what's and, the foundation. And where whereas you know, we remember in scripture that God saw all that he had created and saw that it was good. Um, you you read here at, in chapter one. Um, paragraph one, um, they call that creation the offspring of defect. So, um, so it is it is a secondary being that actually created the physical world. Yeah, yep. and he's he's getting at the fact that our assumptions that we bring to something can color how we interpret it. And if you begin, if you come to this with the assumption that physicality is evil, then you got to somehow explain that. And so that becomes their eisegesis into trying to understand yeah. God, that, that he is the source. So this, if you will, is the, the beginning statement of, of, of what he's going to get to. Uh, if you jump then to page 98... Again, there's so much we can go through, but I just want to pick out a few things on page 98, chapter 2, if you will, the end of, chap of, pair of section 3. It goes this way. Just as we say not that the axe hews the wood or the saw cuts it, but one would very properly say that the hewing and the cutting was the work of a man, of him who made the very axe and saw for that purpose, and long before that made all the tools whereby the axe and saw were manufactured. Thus then, by their argument, the father of all will justly be termed the artificer of this world, and not the angels nor any other maker of the world, except him who was the producer and who first became a cause of what led to the aforesaid creation. So we're, we're dealing with this, which will later become developed, is the, the argument of the first cause. Right, Monsignor? I mean, there yeah. we're dealing with this philosophical yeah. argument of the first cause. And... And uh, this becomes quite important, you know, as we go forward um, in the Arian controversy that will come in, a, in, in the fourth century. God, when God creates the world, he's not, it's not as if he is losing anything of himself because it's not the way that a father and a mother bring forth their child by sharing their substance, but he brings forth all that exists by an act of will, the will. So it's it's about the will. And and um, many times I notice in book two, Irenaeus talks about how confused the Gnostics are on this subject. Yeah. They, they think that uh, this myth about secretions from the artificer, um, you know, they, that you can't do anything unless you lose a little of something of yourself in doing it, basically, you know. And you could see this paragraph, it, it, you know, those of us maybe that aren't used to thinking philosophically in the logic of that, in this paragraph, he, he just shows you how, okay, that axe there, cut down that tree. Well, no, that axe doesn't cut down the tree. Someone had to wield that axe to cut down that tree. Well, wait a second, but where'd that axe come from? Well, somebody made the axe such that a person could wield that axe to cut down a tree. Well, who made that person before then? 
So they get caught up in that, and it goes on into infinite, which you're going to get to a quote later. Yeah. That it just goes into yeah. infinity. So somehow there's got to be a start. And Aaron A. says, that's God. That's God. That's who first became a cause of what mm-hmm. led to the aforesaid creation. That's the foundation. All right. Um, the next quote, page 99, the next page over, chapter 2, section 5 and 6. It's kind of a long section, but I'll read it, and then you give the wisdom, Monsignor. It says, For this is proper to the transcendent excellency of God, not to need other instruments for the creation of the things which are made, And his own word is meet and able to form all things. As John also the Lord's disciple saith of him, all things were made by him, and without him was nothing made. Now the word all comprehends this world also of ours, whereby this too was made by his word, as the book of Genesis saith, that all that we are concerned with God made by his own word. In like manner, David, to express it, for he spake and they were made, he commanded and they were created. Which then shall we rather believe about the making of the world? These before mentioned heretics chattering so foolishly in inconsistency, or the disciples of the Lord and Moses, God's faithful servant and the prophet, who also in the first place related the birth of the world, saying, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and all other things afterwards in order. God, not inferior gods, nor angels. Now that this God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul also the apostle has said it, There is one God, the Father, who is above all things, and therefore all things and in all of us. We have now indeed shown that there is one God. And from the same apostles and from our Lord's discourses, we will further show it. For what sort of thing is it, leaving the words of the prophets and our Lord and the apostles, to regard these who say nothing that is wholesome? Now, Monsignor, the thing that jumped out, and the reason I grabbed this, is this is getting, among other things, it's getting at the authority behind what we believe. Who do you trust? Because he's saying, do you trust the revelation, the scriptures, Moses, the prophets, our Lord, the apostles? That's the witness. Do you trust them or these other people that are coming up with these wild things? I mean, that's Irenaeus asking his congregation, who are you Who are you following out there? That's right. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, and and you know he keeps pointing that in there is a consistency in that revelation from um, the prophets to our Lord's words, and then to the apostles who are now filled with the Spirit. There's a consistency and an integrity in that, and you don't find that in the Gnostics. They just they there's a total hodgepodge of um, ideas. This idea of he didn't need any other instruments, our Lord spoke. That's the foundation of our faith. From ex nihilo, from nothing, he spoke. And, of course, that word is our Lord Jesus, which we'll get to maybe more next week as we look at that. He does deal with it here. You know, know, Marcus, um, I'd done a lot of work in my earlier days anyway with the— the roots of the Nicene Creed, hmm. and um, as we end the you know the next century, one of the things that always struck me about um, the kind of baptismal creeds and things that were floating around out there was this: what they were so what the early Christians had to deal with um, was this idea, this almost this kind of Gnostic idea that if God creates something then um, his DNA is somehow it gets in it. I mean, he, and he's, 
is diminished in some way. Yeah. Um, the Stoics believe that. You know, the Stoics believe that. Um, that I always like to think of them as God is a gigantic spark plug, and his sparks go out, and then um, they illuminate the souls of everything in the universe. And um, the goal is to have more light <laughs> than anyone else. You know. Um, you but know, they were so. Yeah, I was going to say that idea isn't that far fetched from how many Christians are not willing to accept the idea that that we can ask the the communion of saints to intercede for us because they believe that if you do that, you're taking away from Christ. That's a, that's a great point. You know, if you give honor yeah. to Mary, you've taken away honor from Christ or from God the Father. Um, I know... I know people that have a hard time praying even to Jesus and the Holy Spirit because they feel they're taking away from honor from God the Father. You know, it's again, it's the hints of this Gnostic idea. Yeah, that was existing. And, and you know, and the way that the way that a human person creates or generates always involves something of his own substance. And what the church wants to say about how God creates is that his substance is inviolate. It remains inviolate. What we are seeing in this act of creation is his will coming forth. And his will is the energy that brings these things into existence. Um, and that is a kind of a fundamental difference between Catholic Christianity and these Gnostics on, on the idea of creation. Irenaeus is building his foundation for his arguments on the revelation of God's word. The prophets, Moses, and what we see, this is the Bible. Before it's put together in one canonical, defined, published what were those called? Those, those, you know, they weren't scrolls anymore. They were, what were Co they? Codices or the, the codex? Yeah, before they were put together in yeah. a nice published codex, he's yeah. summarized them all here. You know, the word, and they, the problem with these people, they were leaving the words of the prophets and our Lord and the apostles to regard the things that they felt themselves, their own opinions. Okay, and one more quote, or actually I've got a few more, uh, but the next one is from, if you go over to page 106, chapter 6, 1 and 2, the underlying thing that I see in this is the idea of conscience. Listen what he says. He says, Wherefore, Although no man knoweth the Father save the Son, nor the Son save the Father, and those to whom the Son hath revealed him, and of course, in case you didn't realize that, he's quoting from Luke, yet thus much all know, the reason fixed in their minds, acting upon them and instructing them, that there is one God and Lord of all. Now, I want to pause there for a second. I mean, Monsignor, what he's saying is that in the mind, in the conscience of all these false teachers, yet is that underlying truth that God has placed there. They all know it to the core of their being, that there is one God and Lord of all. Now let me go on to the next paragraph, and then I'll, I'll turn it back to you. Yeah. Irenaeus says, And for this cause all things submit, when appeal is made to the Most High and Almighty One, in, in by own invocation of him, even before our Lord's advent. Men used to be saved both from the worst of spirits and from all kinds of demons and from the whole apostate power, not as though the earthly spirits or demons had seen him, but because they knew of the existence of him who is God over all the invocation of whom did and doth cause trembling in every creature in principality and power and every inferior virtue. 
This, this is an underlying important belief of our Catholic faith, Monsignor, that I'm not sure all Christians recognize, and that is the underlying reality of God, the one God as creator, that there's one, is a part of every one of us that was created in his image. And uh, yes, absolutely. And that, that becomes, um, that's an incredibly important teaching for us in terms of how we understand our relationships with our non-Christian uh, brothers and sisters as well. That, that uh, I mean, Irenaeus points out in several places that the Greeks got this because of this aboriginal conscience, this primitive conscience that was there, they, they understood this, um, that people in other religious traditions had this as well, because this was programmed into us by the creator. Um, I mean, and uh, the that's, the real, that's, that's the whole heart of what we believe about interfaith dialogue as Orthodox Catholic Christians. It's not that the, it's not that they're equal, but um, but they've made uh, because of the presence of Christ the Word in their souls, they've made some progress, not adequate, but it's some progress to the truth. I know that Augustine had to deal with Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism, which is the idea that I don't need revelation to find God. I don't yeah. need revelation to be saved. And Augustine and the church teaches, no, grace precedes faith. In Ephesians 2, it says we are saved by grace through faith, not because of our anything we have done. And when St. Paul says that, what he means is, he's not really talking about the end of life salvation. He's talking about that these people were pulled out of their pagan environment, not because they were great people, but because while they were yet sinners, God, by his grace, reached to them. And then by grace, they were drawn home. They still had a freedom to respond, though. That's the point. So here he's getting at the reason that we can, in confidence, go over and sit down with a Buddhist and believe that when we talk about God as the creator, that that Buddhist may understand because we believe at the core of his being, there's sufficient grace that he was given to at least understand that there is a creator. That's what Irenaeus is talking about. And you know, I can a, a much loved book uh, by many Christian people today, C.S. Lewis, The Abolition of Man. Yeah. Remember how he says there's something that is common amongst you know all the traditions, all you know yeah. this basic. What do he call it? The Tao. There's this basic ideas yeah. that are in, intrinsic in us. He and Irenaeus even says the demons know this. Yeah. Right? He yeah. says, not as though the earthly spirits or demons had seen God. That's not why they believe, he says, but because they knew of the existence of him who is God over all. They know. They know. So the question is, just knowing that there are God isn't sufficient to be saved. It involves the act by grace of believing which is surrendering to that which is at the core of our being. But that's not sufficient. I mean, that's the foundation. Then Revelation takes us to Jesus Christ. To the next passage, which I think continues on some of the same ideas on page 113 and 14 along. Oh, yeah. Go uh, ahead, Marcus, Go ahead before Father. Before you jump beyond yes. it, I just, one thing just to follow up on your quote. If you go over to the next page, 107. Yes. Um, in uh, section three, yes, I love the I love the humor of Irenaeus here. Except, therefore, they will have the angels more irrational than the dumb animals. <laughs> <laughs> that even an animal gets the basic idea. You know, <laughs> that I'm he telling is created. you, <laughs> Monsignor. Every morning, the church requires 
that you, as a priest, bishops, religious, cardinals, and popes, pray the Liturgy of the Hours. And the beginning of that is a thing called the Invitatory. And the normal psalm prayed in the Invitatory is Psalm 95. Normal. You can replace it with Psalm 100 yeah. or something. But the, to me, the, the absolute best place to pray Psalm 195 is out in the woods when you're surrounded by birds. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's wonderful. You know, because it says, make yeah. a joyful noise unto the Lord. Sing to the Lord in gladness. Make a joyful noise of thanksgiving unto the Lord. Because the animals know. They know. I believe that. They, when you spend as much time as I have around animals, they know. They are without guile. Mm -hmm. But they know. And that's why when you wake up in the morning and the birds are making so much noise, is because they don't have a long memory. Every day's brand new. Whoa, what is this? Hey, what's this limb? You know what? They're giving praise to their creator. <laughs> they know. That's what you're talking about here. Even animals know. No. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right. We're, we're okay. waxing too eloquently as, as St. Irenaeus warned us. So let's go to page 113, 117, the bottom. Um now let me read this, kind of a long section, but we're getting there. It's, and this continues on the same idea. Now that God is the artificer or fabricator of the world, themselves also hold, who in many ways contradict him, yet confess him, calling him artificer and using the term angel. Not to mention that all the scriptures cry aloud, and the Lord teaches that this is our Father which is in heaven, and not another as we shall show in the progress of our discourse. But for the present, that witness is enough, which they bear who contradict us. All men, in effect, agreeing herein. First the ancients, both keeping especially this persuasion by tradition from the first made man, and honoring with hymns our God, maker of heaven and earth. Then the rest who came after them, receiving from God's prophets the commemoration of the same. And lastly, the Gentiles, learning it from the creation itself. For the creation of itself points to him who created it. And the thing made gives intimation of him who made it. And the world manifests him who set it in order. Moreover, the whole church in all the world hath received this tradition of the apostle. Monsignor, isn't that a beautiful statement? Oh, it's so powerful. It is so powerful. I mean, there, John 3.16 says, God so loved the world. Here, Irenaeus is saying he didn't just begin loving it in the New Testament. He loved it from the beginning and gave all of creation a, a knowledge of his existence. And that's what he said. It's always been here. And when I think that thing, when he says, and lastly, the Gentiles learning it from the creation itself, for the creation of itself points to him who created it, he's quoting St. Paul. Because St. Paul says in Romans 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them ever since the creation of the world. His invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. They all, we all know. Yeah, I, um, I loved, um, in those years when I was at Oxford, um, John Keeble's friend, um, Pusey, Pusey. There was a house built after Pusey at Oxford. And um, there's a, the, the logo, or the, the, you know, the, the motto of the house, of Pusey House is... Um, Deus, Deus scientiarum, God is the God of all knowledge. Yeah. And it is this basic idea that um, 
that all legitimate, honest searches for the truth will lead ultimately to the Creator. Which is why Catholics, we, we, we encourage mm-hmm. science. We encourage philosophy. We encourage mm-hmm. the arts. Because an authentic search for truth draws you back to God. We believe that. Yeah. Uh, there a great text you gave there. Oh, well, they're just this uh, just to me, it's such beautiful. That's why I want everybody to underline these in Irenaeus so then when you get time later, go back and think about them, pray about them, check them out with scripture. One other let me go to I've got three more readings, and then I'm, I'm gonna let you have a, a, a final reading, Monsignor. Go to page 116, chapter 10, number four. He says this. For to ascribe the substance of the things which are made to the power and will of him who is God of all is credible and approvable and consistent. And to this subject may be well applied the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Because although men have no power to make anything out of nothing, but only out of some subject matter, God, on the contrary, excels men in this first of all, that himself devised the material of his work, which did not exist before. So there we have simply his expression of God creating ex nihilo. That's right. And, you know, the danger of, of not recognizing that God is just not like us. He's not just a superman. What he did really is beyond our ability even to do, but to truly understand. And again, the point is that Irenaeus is saying, this is the stuff that is at the core of everything else. And if you get this wrong, as those Gnostics did, everything else drifts away. So that's why yeah. he's beginning here. Right? Let's see. Okay. Um, on the same page at the bottom, 16 and 17, um, the beginning of chapter 11, if you go down to this, he says this, And whereas on the one hand they refuse to believe that he who is God over all did in the regions which belong to him make by his word at his own will— things various and unlike, he being the maker of all as a wise master builder and very mighty king, while on the other hand, they believe that angels or some virtue separate from God and ignorant of him made the universe. In this way, you see, disbelieving the truth and wallowing in a lie, they have lost the bread of true life, falling into a void and depth of shadow, like Aesop's dog, which let go his bread, but rushed on the shadow of it and lost his morsel. Now it is easy, even from our Lord's very words, who confesses one Father and maker of the world and framer of man, proclaimed also by the law and the prophets, and who knows no other, to show that the same is God over all who teaches also and by himself bestows on all just men the adoption of sons to the Father, which is eternal life. Good stuff. Good stuff. And if if we were listening to Irenaeus declaim this, you know, in, in a public thing, um, at this point when he brings up Aesop's dog, um, to reference a pagan childhood story like that, the place would fall apart in laughter. <laughs> so it's a it's just a brilliant way of sh- pointing out the absurdities of the Gnostic position. Yeah, I mean, if if you didn't quite get what Aesop was saying, imagine yourself with a Big Mac in your mouth and you see a shadow of it. So you open your <laughs> mouth to grab the shadow, and then the the Big Mac falls on the ground, right? And as he says. Yes. You lose the bread of life. <laughs> Just wonderful. It's wonderful. Wonderful stuff. He's building his argument. He's building his argument. So I'm going to do one last quote, and then I'll turn it over to you, Father. Uh, 
page 123. Let's jump ahead a little bit. 123. And it's chapter 13, 3 through 4. Okay. And he's really focusing on reflections from Isaiah chapter 4. But if they had known the scriptures, had been instructed by the truth, they would know, of course, that God is not as men are, neither are his thoughts as the thoughts of men. For very distant is the Father of all from these affections and passions that befall mankind. And he is simple and uncompounded and of like members and himself entirely like and equal to himself, being as he is all mind, all spirit, all perception, all thought, all reason, all hearing, all eye, all light, and all over the fountain of all good things, such are the expressions concerning God which suggest themselves to the devout and pious. Now, he is beyond all expression in words, to a degree above all this, yet also because of all this. Thus he shall be well and rightly termed a mind apt to receive all objects, but not like the mind of men. And very well shall he be called light, but nothing resembling the light which is with us. So neither is any other respect will the Father of all resemble any weakness of men. And though for love's sake he is spoken of in these things, yet for greatness we feel that he is above all these. So in, in you understand the Gnostic teachings far better than I do, Monsignor, but to me this is that one of the dangers is that they couldn't get beyond trying to put God into human categories. Yeah, we, we you know, remember from our, our seminary studies, anthropomorphisms. Right. Um, and uh, that's always the dangerous temptation that we try to... Um, well, it's fine to imagine God using the analogies that we know in our experience, but we have to realize that it doesn't begin to get to the mystery of of who God is. And um, yeah. and I guess that that was the thing he was so concerned about the Gnostics is they used human conceptions and human myths for um, the yeah. way they understood God. I mean. It even if we try and understand what does it mean to be a Christian, even looking at that, trying to find that from human perspectives makes us limited because Scripture says, for example, that, that what it means is, is to trust in the Lord with all your heart. What does that mean? To trust in the Lord with all your heart becomes something that only by grace we can even approach. So when he uses that long line, I just love it. It's all mind, all spirit, all perception, all thought, all reason, all hearing, all eye. All. He goes on and on. It, it should humble us to say even the glimpse of him we get in creation is just that. It is a glimpse, but it's just a glimpse. And the more we surrender to revelation that he has given us so that we can help him more to know him more deeply. All right, Monsignor, you had one other quote that you wanted yeah, to use the, to close our section. The other one that I wanted just to close with is on, let's be, I'm going to actually take two, but okay. they're, they're all tied together. But we begin on page 97. All right. Um, and it is uh, book one, uh, or book two, chapter one. Uh, section five. Um, so it'd be up at the top of the page there. Okay. And and Irenaeus says here um, about the all these theories that um, that they keep spinning because they can never get to the truth. You know, they always got to go one more back from the eon or the the god that they've imagined imagined for the. Every one of them, there will be somewhat wanting, occupying, as it does, a very small part in comparison of all the rest, 
and the title of omnipotent will be abolished because you you know you're going to keep going back for keep going backwards so this way of thinking must need end in atheism you know that because their journey is a journey you know an an infinite road back to you know they go back from one eon to an x eon and all that at the end of the day um everything is unknowable and the human instinct is to say at one point oh the hell with it yeah yeah you know and he at the and just to close then um he really spells that out if you go to page 135 um he it's sort of the the kicker to the end of his thing um they will not assent to either of these statements because it they will be refuted by us not being able to render a reason of the aforementioned production of their pleroma, they will be driven and shut up into a confusion of some other order of things above their pleroma, you know, going backwards and backwards, more spiritual, more absolute authority, according to which their pleroma was shaped out. Um, and going on a couple of sentences. Thus the mind must either stay itself upon that God who made the world, that of his own power and from himself he received the model of the world's formation, or if a man once swerved from this, there will always be need of inquiry, whence he who is above the creator had his pattern of the things which are made. And the idea being then, if um, if there's always some ultimate truth which lies above where you happen to be, um, there's going to be an endless searching for the truth, one can never arrive, and this, uh, Irenaeus says, will ultimately lead to atheism. Yeah. You just give up. Yeah, and it's happened in every generation when people, yeah. um, well, it, it, the bottom is when people don't trust that the Holy Spirit has guided the church on these most basic of things, that God hasn't spoken through the scriptures, that God hasn't spoken through tradition. There's got to be something else, they say. And that's the whisper of the devil, as Irenaeus says, that then starts chipping away at it, and eventually, atheism. There is no. God. And you know, Mar- Marcus, as as a priest, um, in the pastoral work one does, I don't know if there's anything more tragic that one a priest encounters, or anyone encounters, is to see. People, especially people of mature years, losing their faith, yeah. and um, and I think somewhat there's a the heart of that failure is to be found in in what Irenaeus is uh, describing here. They have they became restless. They weren't satisfied with the deposit of the faith, and they kind of went off searching for things somewhere else, and. Well, in a difficult, difficult time yeah. now, as as we're recording this program, that they're right now people can't go to mass or any church, and so what about the people that for a long time only went to church because their family did or because it was their weekly obligation, um, and they just did it for months, years, out of habit. So now it's taken away. They've gone two, three months without it. Is, have they gone through a time of being drawn back to God? Or have they said, well, I guess I'm still here. It didn't make a difference, did it? Yeah, I could worship I could worship in my own backyard just fine. I think we've got um, some serious evangelization to be done now at this point. Right. And... In some ways, just like Irenaeus, if we're dealing with people out there, where do you begin? You begin that we assume that there's a spark in their heart. As he, as Irenaeus says, they know at the core of their being that there is one God who made them. Yeah. We can assume that. They may not know Jesus yet, 
but they know there's one God. And it's in there, covered with all kinds of junk. But we can work through that to get to that early spark. Monsignor, invite you, if you would, to close us in this session, if you would, with a blessing. All right. We pray, pray to you, blessed God and creator of us all, that in your love for us, you will help us always to search for you and to never stop till we find our rest in you. And there is no answer apart from you. Thank you for the privilege of being able to walk through this with St. Irenaeus. We pray for the intercession of all the saints and we ask your blessing on us in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Thank you, Monsignor. And thank, thank all you. of you. God bless you. Thank you. And all of you, thank you for joining us on this episode of Deep in History. We both look forward to being with you again next time.